This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to John Beeden speak about his solo journey across oceans. I had a couple of delays, so, so I was two years later actually making the crossing, and it turned out we'd picked the, the most, um, the strongest El Nino year in the last 15 years or something, so the, the, the weather conditions were against me the entire way. Using my, um, my Atlantic crossing as a guide, um, basically being a bit too cocky uh, is what we were. I was, I was pretty quick. So we, we calculated it would take me between 140 and 180 days. Um, we'll find out what happened to that a little bit later. So occasionally you have to go over the side and um, this is to scrape off barnacles off the boat because they create additional drag. And I know that sounds stupid when you're doing two to three knots. But if you, um, if you let, the, let them grow, they just get bigger and bigger and slow the boat down. I, uh, I went over a couple of times and uh, after I saw my first shark, I developed a, uh, a, an alternate method of cleaning the bottom of the boat. <laughs> when I was on the Atlantic, I didn't see any sharks at all. Um, I saw loads on the, on the Pacific. So this is six degrees north of the, um, uh, of the equator. I'd made reasonably good time, but you can see I'm not, not even quite halfway, and I'm at 106 days, so my I th- when we were talking about 140 days, I was thinking I could do it in less than that. So uh, I'd already learned a lot of valuable lessons. Um, so, so I'm six degrees above the, um, the equator. And the equator's a, an incredible place, but you have a, this north equatorial current runs west, which is the way you want to go. The southern equatorial current runs west, but in between, there's this equatorial countercurrent which goes straight back to Peru. This, on a map it looks quite small but that's actually about 1200 miles you've got to row across this countercurrent a bit like being in a riptide when you're um, when you're at uh, at the beach so you just have to bomb across it well the wind turned uh, turned against me and uh, this is a little animation I wish it had been this fast when I was at sea but you can see just there where I, I'm heading for Peru all my friends were sending me jokes um, on email about what jokes I should tell when I got to Peru. I went backwards 500 kilometers, so that's like rowing from here to Ottawa and then getting blown all the way back to Toronto and having to row all the way back to Ottawa again. Um, and, and not only that, in between those two sets of currents, the currents actually swirl. So it's not like you're going out of a current that's going west and into a current that's going east and then into one that's going west again. In between, they swirl and swirl. Some of the days where, where, the, where the course gets very um, uh, raggedy, I rode for probably 36, 40 hours on 20 minutes sleep, had to cram myself in the side of the cabin to be as uncomfortable as possible. So I, when I woke up, I had to move and get up and get back on the oars. If I, I'd row for three hours on the spot, which is better than going backwards, but I'd stop to fill up my water bottle and, uh, and I'd go backwards a mile. So mentally, that was the, the toughest part of the journey. This is just a bit more footage of what it's like to be at sea. A lot of people think it'd be very lonely 
I always say that I'm actually better connected to people when I've done both of these journeys because I get a daily message from people. People are actually interested in what you're doing, so they find the website. I had a friend who I'd not spoken to for 30 years who saw something in a newspaper somewhere, found my website, sent me a message, so we reconnected while I was actually in the middle of the Pacific. Um, that's, a bit of a, that's a bit of a cheat, really. That was a rainy day. It's a bit like soaking in the bath for too long. What really takes a beating is the back of your hands because the oars smash the back of your hands. They're exposed to the sun all the time, so you break the skin. Um, it starts to heal. You break the skin. It starts to heal, and it eventually it gets really very, very painful. Forget about all the hard work, the 15-hour days, the night sky, the um, sunsets, the... Um, the, the wildlife that you see, the sharks, the dolphins, the marlin. I think there's a little bit of footage of marlin. Birds come and roost on the boat because they're not intimidated. I had a, um, had a seagull roost on the boat one night and, and then I had uh, lots of albatross and you think initially, oh, this is pretty cool, I'm communing with nature until you get up the following morning and, um, and they pooped everywhere and the boat's a complete mess. Uh, al albatross really do... Uh, make a proper mess. I'd only provisioned for 180 days, so I had to divert past the top of Vanuatu so a boat could come out, and, um, uh, and we resupplied at sea so I could claim, still claim to have gone non-stop. Um, after Vanuatu, I was hidden in the, sh in, the, in the shadow of the island. It just got harder and harder. I got 1,200 miles to go here. Big decision we had to make was whether to carry on or not because I was running late into the, into the season and the cyclone season was about to start in, in Australia. Now, that wasn't so much about me being at risk, but it was about me being in a stupid situation where I put other people at risk. But we decided we'd just got enough time. And, and in El Nino years, the one advantage is that um, it suppresses the cyclone season for a little while. So we took the risk, and um, this is actually the, the resupply. We probably haven't got time to, to see all this. But um, So these guys, this was the only boat on Vanuatu. So my shore support, Tony, had to fly from the UK to Australia, buy all the provisions, drag them out in his suitcase to um, Vanuatu, find the only boat on the island that was capable of getting to me, and he had to wait. My big problem was that about three weeks before, I'd got a, an oar handle in the ribs, and I'd broken a rib, and I had to row for three weeks um, to get to, and we were on a really tight deadline, and uh, I had to row for three weeks with a, with a broken rib. And... Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's me after um, six months at sea. So I hadn't seen anybody at six months at sea. I'd, I'd rowed past one island that I saw, but it was the only piece of land I saw. Um, that was my row on, um, on sheepskin rowing seats, and that was, as they were leaving me, um, that was my, uh, what was left of one of my sheepskin seats. Coolest thing about this encounter was, my favorite food is cornflakes. And um, my wife had made sure they brought out some cornflakes and some ice cold milk. And, and I sat after they left in front of this volcanic island, had a massive big bowl full of um, cornflakes with ice. I hadn't had any refrigerated products for six months, so it was pretty cool. And um, so this is approaching Australia. It was getting harder and harder. We were, there was supposed to be a cyclone, um, and, uh, and you can see where I had to change course. I just got ground to a stop. And I had to row the last 70 or so hours with about four or five, 90 hours, I think, I rowed with seven hours sleep. You can see where I stopped to have a little rest just before I headed into to Cairns. 
and uh, getting blown back out to sea was a three-hour sleep. That I, it was the first time I'd slept in three days. Um, but it was brilliant to, to... This was the last morning. Absolutely stunning place to arrive, Cairns. And um, this is me rowing in. But we, we also timed this, so I had to row for about eight or nine hours against the current, and then the tide turned. And all, within, within about eight or ten minutes, I felt the tide turn, and, um, and all of a sudden it got easy and I knew I'd kind of cracked it. Rode into Cairns, um, saw my wife and kids for the first time in seven months and uh, that was it. So I rode 14,000 kilometres, a third of the world's circumference. Uh, it took me 208 days and 15 hours. First person ever to go mainland to mainland, non-stop. Second person only ever across the equator. And um, that's my time, I think. Thank you for your attention. People want to know, John, how tall are you? Oh, five foot seven on a good day. Uh, and how much do you weigh? Oh, at the moment, too much. <laughs> when, I got, when, I finished, when I finished, I was 131 pounds. Um, when, I, when I used to race, I raced all through my 20s and 30s. At the peak of each season, I was about 136 pounds. So I kind of, I pushed really hard the last week, so I probably lost a bit more in that, in that last week. But... Uh, so how long has it been since you sold your last boat? Well, I sold, I sold the boat last year to stop me doing anything else stupid. And uh, um, I've asked to buy it back. Uh, when he's, I've sold it to a guy the other side of Toronto who's going to do the Atlantic. But my daughter mentioned a few years ago about wanting to row the Atlantic together. You the will cool, be right back on the stage the cool, as soon as the, the two cool of you thing. do that. Yeah. And how. Amazing. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, John Beeden speaks about his solo journey across oceans. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces John to the stage. I was looking for, uh, well, uh, the epitome of, of older and reckless. And I came across this fellow, Beeden, and... I read the sentence about him, and it said that he had rowed solo across the Atlantic. And I looked at it and said, rowed, really rowed. He didn't sail, he didn't motor, he didn't fly, he rowed. And then it went on to say, and the Pacific. <laughs> he rowed solo across the Atlantic and the Pacific. I mean, that's mind-boggling. And, and the first thought is, Who's the crazy guy who would do that? I mean, that's an astonishing thing to undertake, let alone to survive. 
and, and, and achieve it. And, uh, and so we tracked him down. And, uh, and we're lucky to have him here. And my question to John is, come and tell us why, John. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Um, so the, the why, I, sh I thought I should start by explaining what ocean rowing is, because not many people uh, understand the, um, uh, the ins and outs. First time anybody rowed an ocean was in uh, 1896, believe it or not. These two oyster fishermen from, from New York um, went chasing a $10,000 reward offered by a newspaper magnet, got all the way to France to find there was no newspaper magnet and no $10,000, but they still, they still made the first, uh, first official crossing. Um, 70 years before anybody else attempted it, two crazy Englishmen, um, which is probably why I'm here today, and they set off in English rows, and this, this, um, this little rowing boat is mind-blowing compared to what I did. They had a little tarp that they dragged across the top. They actually got rescued uh, off the coast of Ireland by a lighthouse keeper in a massive storm before they got dashed on the rocks. Um, the first person to row solo across the Atlantic was a guy called John Fairfax, described as a, uh, or self-described as a Caribbean pirate who's basically a cigarette and uh, alcohol smuggler, uh, but we'll let, we'll let him get away with that. Most interesting thing about, so he did this in 1969. He landed in Florida, uh, which, was, uh, which, which was pretty impressive in itself because of the currents. But he also got a message from the guys uh, on the moon in Apollo 11 as he landed, congratulating him. Most Im impressive thing for me in this crossing is the, the boat was designed by a guy called Ufa Fox, who designed lifeboats in the Second World War that could be dropped from planes, didn't destroy themselves on impact, but self-righted. So I, I actually believe, though, that ocean rowing should be um, as close to traditional rowing as possible. Um, so you're allowed a rudder, you're allowed oars, um, but no sailing um, intrusion into, into the rowing boat. This is my boat, so it, it is a more modern version of, of Ufa's boat, designed so the wind slips over the back. It has a cabin at the back, which is where all your electronics are, um, where you um, rest if you can rest, and, um, and you're safe if there was a really bad storm. The boat's designed to self-right because of the, the, the more buoyancy in the top if she's upside down. And this is me arriving in, in Barbados. Other people choose to do it in different ways. They've designed boats now that are actually backwards. So you'll see that this boat has, um, has the cabin actually at the front of the boat. And basically the, the bulkhead of the, of the cabin acts as a sail. These boats also have daggerboards, autopilots. All these things make it easy. Now, in, this is just my opinion. That I think if you're going to row an ocean, it should be as difficult as possible. Because you... Cause you because you only get one chance. You're going to spend all that time and investment in money and, and, and effort and, um, and then get there and think you've cheated yourself. Well, that's, that's how I thought about it anyway. People cheat in other ways as well. These guys actually claimed a, a, a speed crossing record until one of their crew members sent in a, uh, this image. They've taken their spare oars and, um, and their sleeping bag and made a sail, um, which is fine if they were in trouble and struggling and needed to, to make good time but they shouldn't have claimed the record. So people get up to all sorts of things at sea and who's looking, there's nobody about. So uh, Moses's question was why? So my reasons for rowing the Atlantic where I'm an aging runner, I'm a lifelong runner, still running every day, um, but I was starting to slow down so I was looking for a new challenge. I've been diagnosed with a, um, a congenital heart condition where I had to have open heart surgery. So I was looking for a challenge that was 
bigger than the heart surgery, so I got something to focus on. And also, my kids were of an age where I thought it was a pretty cool thing to take something that seemed absolutely unachievable and, um, and show them with planning and perseverance and, and uh, being smart that you could achieve whatever you set your mind to. That's probably been a bit too successful because they're a bit cocky now. Um, so anyway, so I decided to set off and row the Atlantic after I'd seen a couple of guys um, arrive in Barbados when we were on a family vacation a few years before and after a lot of conversations with my, with my uh, cardiologist. In the, any of these adventures was having to learn a complete new skill set. I'd never... Um, I'd never rowed before, I'd never been to sea before, so I had to go back to school to learn how to navigate and to safety at sea. I bought myself a training school. If there are any rowers in the audience, I don't want the critique of my, um, of my rowing style, but I bought myself a training manual, uh, Olympic training manual, and went out on the lake, and three years later, I got some kind of, some kind of form. And then I set off across the Atlantic from the Canaries, what I subsequently learned was I really shouldn't have said I was rowing across the Atlantic because I rowed from an island off the coast of Africa to another island off the coast of uh, North America. Um, to, to, I, I think now to claim to have rowed an ocean, you have to row from mainland to mainland. So it kind of invalidates my, uh, <laughs> my Barbados experience. Um, this is me, uh, I'll keep quiet for a second. This is me arriving in Barbados. I haven't done much about the trip, the Barbados trip. <laughs> so, um, so I had a great trip to, um, I quickly learned what it was like to be at sea on, on my trip to um, uh, two or three weeks, I guess, I'd, I'd been out there and I'd start to feel at one with the boat and, um, uh, and, and it seemed to get easier, although I was rowing 13 or 14 hours a day, it seemed to get easier and easier and uh, I got quicker and quicker. It turns out I was the second fastest person ever across the Atlantic, and, um, which at 49 I was quite proud of, but I was a bit disappointed when I finished. I, um, I just felt like I was getting into my stride, and I felt like I could, I could have kept going. So anyway, so I'd, I'd arranged to sell the boat. Somebody had offered me cash for the boat, and I sold the boat. The idea behind that was to stop me doing anything else stupid. <laughs> I'd taken up three or four years of family time and commitment and all that stuff that goes into these things. And um, so, so when I got back, I started looking for something more challenging to do because I realized I'd made a mistake. Selling the boat actually gave me a brilliant opportunity to redesign and build a new boat. And, and this, the day after I arrived in Barbados, I sat down with Tony, my uh, shore crew, and we made a list of 48 improvements that we'd made to the boat to make it better. So we went back, we built a new boat. I found out that nobody had actually managed to make the crossing from North America to, um, to Australia. A couple of people, uh, a, few, a handful of people that have attempted it, some taking three years, only one actually making Australia, doing a short drop down from Samoa, which is quite difficult. Two people have done the Southern Ocean, but that's um, the Southern Hemisphere crossing, but that's slightly different. It's a trade winds route. Basically, the difficult thing about this route is, compared to the Atlantic, is that you're cutting diagonally across the trade winds. When you get into the Southern Hemisphere, the, the trade winds are actually southwest, so they, uh, sorry, from the southeast, so they're pushing you north away from where you want to go. So anyway, so we decided we were going to do this. I had a couple of delays. Um, but eventually, May 31st, 2015, I set off. That's my little navigation light under the Golden Gate Bridge. And 
Now, I left at midnight because of the tide. The tides are, are really strong around San Francisco and suck me back all the time. This is my first day. Okay, so it's day one. I think I'm about 15 miles away from the bridge. And uh, I've just come across this big marker buoy. I saw that, um, the reason I show that buoy is I saw it four times. Every time the tide changed, it, dr it dragged me back towards San Francisco. So even getting away from San Francisco is very, very difficult. Breaking away from that huge land mass, massively challenging. Eventually, and it's very, very cold actually as well off the coast of uh, California. I mean, it's lovely on, on, the, on the land. But all that heat compared to the, and combined with the cold water coming down from the Arctic, I think the water's about 48 degrees. Um, creates massive fogs, it's freezing cold at night, there's lots and lots of shipping. Eventually we got into some decent weather. Coming up after the break. So occasionally you have to go over the side and um, this is to scrape off barnacles off the boat. Uh, after I saw my first shark I developed a, uh, a, an alternate method of cleaning the bottom of the boat. <laughs> For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.